Thank you, Grace Covenant. I appreciate so much your generosity. The Lord has inspired you to give so that we can serve our community, and um, it's special, special to pastor people like you. Online, thank you very, very much. Welcome. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. We're glad that you chose to make us your church home for an hour today. Um, I hope you had a great Christmas. I know it was different, but I hope it was nonetheless beautiful and meaningful. Ours was great. We enjoyed one another. Lots of good food. I had to work out twice on Christmas <clears throat> and just to burn off everything that I ate. Uh, I was neither guilty about what I ate nor mad about working out. Uh, it was a good trade-off, a good trade-off. But we also enjoyed a wonderful time of worship, uh, reading the Christmas story that morning, singing the Christmas carol, and asking God to bless our day and for us to be focused on Him who is the reason for our existence. It was a beautiful moment, a beautiful moment. And here we are at the end of the year. Now, I'm not real big on the flip of the calendar, from December 31st to January 1st, I'm not. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's a significant day for most people because they want to start anew. Um, but I, to me, it's not much different than going from August 31st to September 1st. It's just a day. It's different than the kind of days that are really special that are found in the Bible. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, those moments were prescribed by God as being certain moments of worship that commemorate the new year. And their new year was celebrated on the basis of their uh, deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And so that was a big time. I mean, when God says, this will be the beginning of months for you, that's huge. And he just made a brand new calendar for them when they came out of Egypt. They already had one. He said, scrap it. I want your new year to begin with the memory of your deliverance. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Ours, they just went on the basis of the winter solstice, the summer solstice, the vernal, the autumnal equinox, the Gregorian calendar just said, we're going to make this the first day. Not much spiritual reason behind it. So it doesn't carry a lot of weight for me spiritually. It does carry a lot of weight for me sociologically. And I realize that the minds of people really flip over. Now I wish that our problems would also recognize the calendar. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? I mean we could actually say that 2020 and the problems through which we've gone this year are going to simultaneously end. That on December 31st Corona's going <laughs> to sprout wings and fly away. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and we're going we're gonna to get rid of the political unrest and the ethnic unrest, we're all going to love one another, right? That'd be nice. That'd be great. But I don't think so. So it doesn't mean much spiritually, but it does mean a lot sociologically. I realize that people in their minds think, okay, I got 15 pounds to lose. <laughs> Starting January 1st, I'm going to go at it. Now the problem is, most of the gyms are closed, so you're in trouble got to get a video series or something and do it in your house. Get a Peloton. I don't know. But something that allows you the privilege of saying, this is going to be a new moment for me. And I'm proud of you if you get, get going like that. If, if you need a moment like January 1st to make it happen, I'm proud of you. But I sure would like 
for every flip of the calendar of every day to be a new moment where you can do something great for God, to make a significant change so that you could be better. Because generally speaking, you and me included, when we start in January, we end in February. Most resolutions just peter out by January 31st. Folks go back to the way they are and then they gain four more pounds that year and they decide, ah, boy, January 1st is rolling around again. I'm going to get back in that gym. If we decide to make every day special, then it will be. That didn't encourage you very much, did it? <laughs> Having said that, I'm going to preach on the end of things today. And when I speak of end, we're going to talk a little bit about eschatology, the study of end things. That's what it means. It's a theological term, study of end things in the Bible. And we're going to look at some views, and we're going to look at how we ought to respond concerning things of the end. Now, the reason I'm speaking on this doesn't have much to do with the fact that it's coming up on the end of the year. It has a lot to do with a lot of people talking about is this the end of all things? I mean, we had, we had fires out in California that just raged like never before, burning tens of thousands of acres. It was so bad. My sister lives in California. It was so bad, so bad that they had an earthquake and my sister didn't care because the fires were worse. I called out there and said, you all okay? You had an earthquake. She said, we did. That's how bad the fires were. It just went by like no blip on the radar screen at all. We have coronavirus. We had ethnic unrest. We have political unrest. We have economic concerns that still kind of loom on the horizon. What is going to happen with 6.8% unemployment, which we are becoming used to, which never used to be used to? What's that mean? And so all these issues, people began to say to me, is this the end of all things? Is this a plague found in the book of Revelation? Are we going to find ourselves, you know, beckoning the coming of Jesus? Well, let me say this. I ask him to come all the time. Please come. Deliver me from this. Deliver us from this. Change this world and make it better. Please come. But he's not answering my prayer like I want. He's coming. Not bodily, but he's coming to my life and he's coming to yours and he's coming to our community in ways that are significant and, and beautiful. You have to see him, though, in order to realize it. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Some people don't see him because their heart isn't pure enough to be able to peer through all the circumstances and watch his movie. He's coming. But I'm also not so convinced that 2020 <clears throat> and the things we've experienced this year are, are solitaire in their impact. I think our nation is to some degree under a significant period of judgment, not just a year. We've been bad for a long time. We've been disobedient for a long time. We've intentionally gone the wrong way for a long time. And God's mercy has been evident in that we still exist. But I think things have been building up. Do I think that this kind of judgment of which I'm speaking is somehow contextualized in the book of Revelation? Probably not, because those judgments are pretty severe. I mean, it, it, one third of humanity gets judged by a plague. Ouch. 
that's bad. We don't have that. But we do have difficulty. We do have troubles that are not tenable as much as we would like by us. We can't manage them near as well as we would like in order to see the results, the outcome that we need. And we find ourselves scrambling for solutions and we are always a day late and a dollar short. We can't figure out how to get the right leaders in place to make the right decisions on our behalf. We can't figure out how we can get in the right place to make decisions for ourselves. We don't even know what the right decisions are. We are as confused as we have ever been. And I think it's a long buildup. I don't know how many years, probably a, a decade and a half, maybe two, maybe more. But we've done enough in our nation to deserve exactly what we are getting and more. That we do not get worse is the mercy of Almighty God. Having said that, I do not believe that we find ourselves in the book of Revelation where judgment is coming like that. I don't. Now, I could be wrong. And as I move forward in this message, I want you to know that theologically, I limp in this area. I don't stride very comfortably. It's not smooth. Because I have really no clue. I know my Bible pretty well. I've come to some conclusions about what I believe regarding in things. But I really don't know. Because there's a lot of symbology in there. There's a lot of... of, 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 of pageantry and, and understanding of symbols and, 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 and bringing Old Testament into new and how you begin to fit those within time is really, really hard. Some people are ironclad in their understanding about what it's supposed to look like. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt what the mark of the beast is. I saw a sign, no joke, a sign on 50, Route 50, right out here. Saw a sign as I was going home one day. It said, coronavirus vaccine is the mark of the beast. Now that you didn't laugh, says that you might have put that sign up there. <laughs> that, that, I, I, don't, I don't know. And I'm not trying to offend anybody who did. I just want you to know people are beginning to think differently about what, what it looks like for us to interpret truth. Now let me help you with how I look at my Bible and then we're going to get into some views. I believe that exegesis ought to be used on, on a regular basis as you interpret scripture. Now exegesis has nothing to do with Jesus. It's a different kind of word. It's the study, the practice of understanding what the writer who was writing, whatever they were writing, was intending to say to the reader. The context in which the writer was the context in which the readers were, the grammar and the, the literary style that is being used, the time period in which they were, putting that all together, and then as you begin to, to, to parse it out, understanding what the original intent was of the writer, and then making good application to your life. Um, I do that just about in every book of the Bible I can read. But then there are, you get to the book of Revelation. And, and generally speaking, people don't want to use good exegesis there. There are some ideas that somehow we can interpret the locusts, which are a plague in the book of Revelation, as Black Hawk helicopters. That somehow a war is going to happen called Armageddon, and Black Hawk helicopters are going to represent the locusts. Now, I'm not saying that's not possible. Again, I limp. 
But I am saying that's not really good exegesis. You're not beginning to allow the Bible to interpret itself. You are putting your own interpretation in on what you believe the writer was trying to say. And I don't think John, who was really quoting what Jesus said and just writing it down, I don't think John or Jesus knew what a Black Hawk helicopter was then. I don't think that's what they had in mind. Now, again, I limp. I could be wrong. But I have to at least give you my opinion about what I believe because everybody's trying to figure out what is going on. And of course, these are some of the more difficult and unmanageable times in which we have ever lived. But may I say, humanity has experienced worse. That we call these our worst times says how good we got it. No amens there. This isn't good, but it's not as bad as bad has been. Civil war, really bad. A license for every human being in America to murder their neighbor. That's what it was. Bad. Who did you trust? You didn't know. Civil war was bad. And not just in America have we had really bad times. All over the world there have been horrible moments. And each time there was a horrible moment, there seemed to be somebody in the body of Christ saying, Jesus is coming back because it's so bad. This is the book of Revelation that is happening. And if I was in their generation, I would want to believe that because it's bad. And I want deliverance. Get me out of here. In 2011, um, there was a gentleman by the name of, and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, to, for the first time in my long tenure of preaching, I'm actually going to use notes today just to make sure I get everything right. There was a gentleman by the name of uh, Harold Camping. Harold Camping. He was president of the Family Radio Christian Network, and he claimed that the rapture, and Judgment Day would be May 21st, 2011. In March 2012, when the rapture didn't happen in May of, May of 2011, Campion acknowledged to his listeners that he had been mistaken and that an attempt to predict the date of Christ's coming was sinful. And this is not alone. This is not singular in its orientation with respect to, to people trying to figure out when Jesus is coming. This happens three or four times of significance in just about every century. Somebody is saying, get ready, Jesus is coming. Now, if, if somebody is right on those predictions, and, and generally they are preparing for it, uh, whether they are pre-trib or post-trib, or mid-trib, and I say those three things in terms of the tribulation that is found in the book of Revelation, they do some things in preparation. Um, if you're pre-trib, you don't need to do anything in preparation because it means that you believe the rapture, which is a taking up of believers. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Jesus comes back, takes up believers. You believe the rapture, is actually going to happen before the Great Tribulation, which is this difficult moment that comes upon humanity. 
And so you're not preparing at all. You just want out. It, it's your, it's your, your great deliverance. If you're mid-trib, you're probably building bomb shelters. You're doing what you can to try to prepare, and you're, you're getting your, your, uh, your, your military rations and your beans and, and all the things that are most important to your well-being so that you can make it through. And of course, if you're post-trib, meaning you believe the rapture is happening after the tribulation, then you believe that you obviously are going to have to prepare for it. <clears throat> and if somebody is there and it happens some, somehow mid-trib or post-trib, I just want them to build me an extra room. <laughs> Again, I limp, even though I don't really believe that it's going to be pre-trib. I think that we probably are going to go through stuff because, generally speaking, Christians, uh, everything in the Bible is about us going through, not be de being delivered from. Just about everything in the Bible. It's a rare thing when the Christians get delivered from something. Generally speaking, it's going through. Our passage today is going to be taken out of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Peter says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love one for another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Lord, help us as we study your word. Let me give you a couple of books that might be helpful. A book by Robert McKenzie. Identifying the seed, identifying the seed, an examination and evaluation of the differences between dispensationalism and covenantal theology. Secondly, a book by David Chilton called Paradise Restored. And thirdly, a book called Left Behind by Tim LaHaye. The latter one is a fictional account, but it does give you some idea about what some of the body of Christ believes. Two points I want to make out of this passage. One, are we there yet? And two, what do we do before we get there? We like children when we're driving on a long trip with parents are always saying, are we there yet? Are, are you coming back yet? Is it time yet? And the parents are always saying, please stop asking that question. Amen. Just stop asking that question. We'll we'll." we'll We'll be there when we get there. And I, I, I wonder whether God isn't asking the same thing. Please, or saying the same thing. Please stop asking that question. Because Peter gave us a really good prescription on what we ought to do before we get there. With respect to me, I am um, probably what you would call a preterist. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. -E -E but I'm a partial preterist. Now, preterist means past. And most of the things about which we speak with, in respect or with respect to the last things are found in the Gospels, in 1 Corinthians 15, in 1 Thessalonians 5, in the Gospels in Mark 13, in Luke 21, in Matthew 24. In, 
in Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew 24, what we find is, is called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus, either near the Mount of Olives or on the Mount of Olives, is actually speaking about last things, end-time things. But I believe that the things about which he is speaking are primarily things that are going to happen within the generation of the people who are living, not later. There are some things that might happen later, but the, but the lion's share of what Jesus is saying is going to happen, I believe, in that generation. And he's referring mostly to the end of the way of Jewish life that people have depended on for the past 1,500 years. The end of sacrifice, the end of the temple, and that Titus, the, the Roman general, came and besieged Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed it. And until 1948, it was no longer, Israel was no longer a nation. And they still have not been able to sacrifice at their temple because the temple was destroyed. The way of life has, was obliterated at that moment. And I think that's the thing about which Jesus was speaking. Now, could there be references to other things? Yes. But that's where the dispensationalists believe it's way down the road and that Jesus is talking about things that are going to happen either in our generation or preceding generations. I take my cue from what Peter said here, who wrote this in about, mm, we think, the early 60s. And I have, for the book of Revelation, an early dating. And I, I know some of y'all are just trudging through with me on this, but, but you can go back and listen. It'll help you later. An early dating for the book of Revelation. I, I look at it before 70 A.D. rather than 90 to 100 A.D. because I think most of the book of Revelation is talking about the end of the Jewish life as people knew it after Titus destroyed Jerusalem. That's huge because if it's after, then it has no, no insight to that, no application to that, and it's dealing with a future generation, and we don't know which generation it is. As a preterist, I also believe that there is something that is happening with respect to a second coming. So a full preterist doesn't believe really in a literal second coming, a bodily second coming of Christ. They believe in a coming of Christ that is more, more figurative. I don't. I believe he's coming back in body. That makes me a partial preterist. And I believe he's coming back and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we'll meet the Lord in the air and it's going to be a great time. I don't know when. I wish it was tomorrow, but I believe it's happening. Having said all of that, Peter says here, the end is near. Near usually means near. I mean, I don't think Peter was thinking that the end was 2,000 years later near. I don't think so. I think he was talking about the end being in that generation, being a man who lived in Jerusalem, knowing what Jesus said, that as Jesus approached Jerusalem on the last week of his life, he said, not one stone will be left upon another, O Jerusalem. How the father wanted to gather you under his wings like a mother hen does her chicks, but you would have none of it. The disciples heard that, but they hadn't seen it. And they knew Jesus was a prophet. And the longer they lived, they knew the closer they were to that day. I think Peter was speaking about that end being near. Now, he could be, again, I'm, my, my stuff limps. It could be that near is a far version of near. 
And he could be talking about us. But regardless of what near means, he does give a prescription about what we need to do before we get to the spot where end happens. And that's what I concentrate on the most, dear people. I'm concentrated on making sure that you're living right because I don't know when the end is coming. But I'm trying to prepare you to be ready for it. There are some things that you need to do before you get there. Are you there yet? No. Stop asking. Just do this instead. Do this. Be of sound judgment. Don't always be looking for the signs necessary to prove that somehow we are going to be elevated out of our situation and the world is going to, 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 to be destroyed and then we're going to get back and I can't wait. And, 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 and since God's going to do that, what's the point of me doing anything at all? I'm just going to wait here and see it happen. Please, he said, be of sound judgment. And what does sound judgment mean? Make sure that all of your decisions are fully scripturally based. It's, it's not just one passage upon which you need to build your life. You need to build your life on the entirety, the totality of what the will of God is for you. We need to evangelize. That's being of sound judgment. We need to obey him regularly. That's being of sound judgment. We need to make sure that we are excellent husbands and excellent wives, wonderful fathers, great mothers, fine Christian brothers and sisters, excellent witnesses to our community. We are making good decisions, biblical decisions, thinking right every day, trying to make sure that when we can lay our head on the pillow, we are bringing a smile to, our fa to the face of our God every day. Sound Judgment in every area. Since the end of near, what kind of people ought you to be? People who have sound judgment. Why? For the purpose of prayer. If you don't have a mind that is thinking biblically, then the things that come out of your mouth to God aren't going to be near as in line with, with his will as they should be. Your prayer life is dependent on how much you know about the Bible. Your prayer life is dependent upon what you know about the will of God for your life. And we cannot think that somehow the things we desire are the most important things to the heart of God for us. We have to submit them to the will of Almighty God. We have to find out what God has to say about those things in Scripture. Look at the priorities that are most important to our well-being that God says are important and then begin to base our prayer life on that. And when we do that, we can talk to him properly and bring his will into the earth more readily. Be of sound judgment for the purpose of prayer. Prayer for you. Prayer for our, our church. Prayer for our community. Boy, we've got to make sure that we are constantly saying the right things to God about the things that are most important to God. Our heart is in line with his heart. Our will in line with his will. There's no disparity between the two since the end is near. And hear me, even if it's not talking about an eschatological end, your end is more near today than it was yesterday. I'm closer to my end than I was last year. And so since it's my end, Lord, teach me to number my days. 
that I may present to you a heart of wisdom. Isn't that the same thing Peter's saying? Help me to be a sound judgment about what I'm thinking so I can present to you something that's in line with your will that is my heart so I can do what you want me to do. Since the end is near, be of sound judgment for the purpose of prayer, inclining your heart to be right in line with what God wants to do and what he wants to perform in your life. And above all, he says, okay, so here we have our, 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 our personal consecration before God, sound mind, sound judgment for the purpose of prayer, making sure that you are vertically on top of things. You're right in line with the will of God. And then he says, okay, with respect to people, love folk. So we have the, the vertical in line, and now we've got the horizontal in line. Since the end is near, love God and love people. That's all Peter's saying. Love God and love people. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second it's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is the one who coined that phrase and put those two together inextricably. Loving God, Matthew 22, 37 through 39, and loving people. Being right with God every day. Obeying him, loving him. Obtaining his heart. And then he says, love people. Put on the bond of love. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And I need people to love me because I sin. I need covering. Am I, am I the only one? Mm -hmm. All of us need help. And we know that God is particular in his love for us. There's no question how much he cares about us. He gave his son. He so loved the world that he gave his boy for our benefit. We don't doubt that. But it's a hard thing. To, to figure out how in the world we can get people to love us, isn't it? Why? Because we are so unlovable. We just don't have all the stuff that makes people just gravitate toward us on a regular basis. And by the way, you seem to have the same problem with others that they have with you. I know you think you're the most lovable person on the planet. I know you think that, that of, of, of all people, you're the easiest to get along with. You don't understand why people don't get you. You can't figure it out why they just don't serve you well, why they don't understand you. You speak English like them, but they don't get what you're saying. They don't know what you mean. They don't understand you. You just don't know what's wrong with you. We always think generally that it's somebody else's problem. But we need to look in the mirror and realize we are the people who are most unlovable. And as a result, we need, we need the mercy of God. And if we realize that we are unlovable, then we can also look at others and say, wow, they're just like me. And what I need, I'm trying to get from them, I really need to give to them. And if everybody has that attitude, hear me, nobody lacks. It's like the institution of marriage. <clears throat> uh, marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. A contract is that which you sign with somebody else that protects you from them. So that if they don't do what you want them to do in the terms of the contract, you now have legal recourse 
And you can either take them to court, contract is null and void, you can sue them, do whatever you need to get damages. That's what a contract is. A covenant is exactly the opposite. When a person says, I do, they're saying, I'm signing my name on the dotted line to protect you. Not to protect myself from you. I'm giving myself for your benefit. When you mess up, I'm going to be there to help. And if you mess up to a, I mean, to a big level, I'm going to love you anyway. I'm here to protect you. That's what a covenant is. Even though our friendships and our brotherly relationships in the body of Christ do not elevate to the point of a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman, they are based on the same principles. That we are to love one another unconditionally. It's called agape. Four different kinds of love in scripture. Agape, which is a God kind of love, love, unconditional love. Phileo, which is a brotherly kind of love. Storge, which is the familial kind of love. The love that a father has for a son, a mother for a daughter, and vice versa. And then there's eros, romantic love. Agape is the only kind of love that requires your complete commitment and nothing in return. Everything else is reciprocal. Agape is not. And this is what Peter is using here. Agape one another. Agape one another. Love one another. Since the end is near, be of sound judgment for the purpose of prayer and figure out how you can give yourself to benefit somebody else expecting nothing in return. Since the end is near, Love God and love people. Again, as, mu as much as I want to be in a bunker, if it's going to be difficult, Peter didn't say build one. Since the end is near, this is how we ought to prepare. Love God. Love people. This is why I don't teach on end time things a whole lot because... This is what Peter says do when you get to the point at which you realize the end is near. Love God and love people. And whenever he comes, whenever he chooses to widen this thing up, you'll be ready. You'll be ready. You will be ready. That's the best way I can prepare you for the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking for your grace and mercy. Help us as a people. To live in such a way that we understand what the end looks like at some level. And do what we need to do before we get there. 